0: Thank you, worship team. That was a song I needed to hear today, so I appreciate it. Now, early on in my ministry career, I started out as a, as a young youth pastor, and um, I was within a church that had a, a flailing and, I'd say, failing children's ministry. And what that meant as a youth pastor is that by the time, um, well, year after year, I would matriculate a lot of people out into college, and receive none into the ministry. So after a few years, I had like one middle school student, because by the time they, you know, some of the kids reached, you know, third and fourth and fifth grade, they kind of just, well, they looked for for better things. And so, you know, I had a, things were going fairly well with the with solid high school career, but our, yeah, our middle school was was fairly emptied out. Now, during that time, looking to you know pick up a little extra cash, I saw a uh, a, a job ad for you know writing curriculum for for middle school students. And I said, well, you know, I don't really work a lot with middle school students, but I have lots of curriculum. Uh, I have lots of lessons I can you know reformat, and so I I applied. I sent them my stuff, and you know they, they were were. Fun- replied back, they're like, listen, you know, we, we like your stuff, uh, and we don't just want to like, put it in a package that we sell, but we actually want it to, to be on our, uh, on our blog that we, that we offer people. like, you want to do that? I'm like, sure. And they said, well, so, you know, each month we want a lesson, a game, and an article for how to minister to middle school students. Okay. I don't really have any how am I going to pretend to be this expert who, who knows all this stuff when, you know, it's just like my, my middle school is almost non-existent. Well, I did what we all do. Well, most of us all do. I tried to, to fake it. Um, I bought a book and, you know, and if you act with like you have confidence, most people believe that you actually know what you're talking about. Um, but at the, at, you know, as I'm trying to write some articles to help, you know, people in junior high ministry and, you know, middle school ministry, and the whole time I'm thinking, man, they're going to find me out. They're going to know I'm an absolute moron. Yeah, I, I know a few things about ministry in general or youth ministry in general, but, but middle school ministry in particular, man, I am I'm out here on an island. Now, most people at some point in their life, whether deserved or undeserved, have such a feeling? You know, the the memoirist and poet Maya Angelou, you know, she recounts, you know, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh uh-oh, they're going to find me out. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out, right? Psychologists call this imposter syndrome, right? It's just like you know, we put, get put into a position where there's some sort of prestige or notoriety or responsibility, and there's this fear that, well, I don't really belong here. And people are going to figure out that I don't really belong here. I fear that. Don't, my weaknesses are going to be exposed. The, the critics, whether real or imagined, well, they're right There's so much I don't know. There's so much I I can't, I I don't have under my grasp, and I'm going to just be exposed for the world to see in open humiliation and shame. We feel weak. We feel afraid. We feel nervous about the critics that are certainly coming. And such a fear is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it can be a good thing. It can drive you and motivate you to go out and to learn more and to work harder and to do better. But it can also incapac- incapacitate you. I don't want to go through that. I don't want people to see what a failure and a loser I am. I don't want to be put up on a stage just to to be humiliated. Now, such a, you know, when we have such a fear, it's, it's hard to know what to do with it. But what if God calls you to do something? What if the Lord says, I have a mission for you. I have a task for you. And you're sitting there thinking, well, if I go out and do that, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have the exper- expertise. I didn't go to seminary or Bible college. or I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't want to be this imposter who gets exposed for the world to see. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to be going through chapters 9 and 10. Not all of it, don't worry, um, but a lot of it, so maybe worry. Um, it's on page, If you're using the Pew Bible, the red one that's in front of you, it's on pages uh, 317 and 318. Well, we began this, this series going through portions of 1 Samuel and really focusing in on the, the life of Saul, Israel's first king. And we talked about last week how, how Israel, with rejecting God as their king, they, they said, give us a king. And Samuel, the prophet, from the word of the Lord, he, he says, he warns them about what the king is going to do. And they say, we don't really care what, what the consequences are. Give us what we want. And this Lord says, fine, you, you want it, you can have it. And here we're picking up on, with the uh, story on, uh, with Saul, the Israel's first king, and we start at chapter 9, verse 1. And there was a Benjaminite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Aviel, son of Zaror, son of Bechoroth, son of Aphia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul. As handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, he was a tad taller than anyone else, right? We see this, this man, tall, handsome, from an upstanding family, a man who looks like a leader, a man who looks like he should be in charge. I was reading the other day about, um, you know, just, well, how much we really want people to be tall and handsome and good looking to be our leaders. Joseph Stalin, as he was, you know, this young Bolshevik revolutionary, and he he had his, you know, his idol in, in Lenin, and he finally got to meet his idol, and he ended up being really, really disappointed because you know Stalin, who wasn't very a a tall man himself, he's like he's not any taller than I am. This larger-than-life personality, this man who's you know directing thousands and leading this revolution, and yet he's, like a five-five shrimp. It's pretty but this is not what Saul is. He, he is a man who is tall and handsome and good looking. He is a man that we would want to lead. And he comes across and he starts with a problem. I'm just going to summarize this a little bit. He's going out and he's looking with his servant for his father's donkeys who are lost and astray. For three days, they're, they're scouring about the, the land looking for these lost donkeys. And finally, his, his servant says, listen, there's a... There's a seer, there's a prophet nearby. Somebody who the word of God comes to, let's maybe go and, and check out and see what, what he has to say. Maybe he can tell us where these donkeys are. That prophet Samuel, he had just been informed by the Lord that hey, there's a man named Saul who's coming, and he's going to be the, the ruler of my people. And so what do we see in uh, verse verse 20b? He says, This is Samuel speaking to Saul, and he says, To whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? As Saul answered, But am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe in Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why would you say such a thing to me? Right? He said, Listen, I'm, I'm from a small pond, I'm not the man that I'm not the man who's of the big clan of the you know of, of the big city of the you know the the big people who can command the thousands. I'm from a small dinky tribe, and the smallest dinky clan within that tribe. Why would you choose me? But the Lord had chosen him, so we keep reading, uh, chapter ten, verse one. And then Samuel, he took a flask of olive oil and he poured it on Saul's head. He kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you're going to meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. And they're going to say to you, Hey, the donkeys that you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Then, verse 3, You'll go on from there, and you'll reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. And they're going to greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, verse 5, you'll go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost, and you'll approach the town, and you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps, being played before them and they'll be prophesying and the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will prophesy with them and you'll be changed into another person and once these signs are fulfilled do whatever your hand finds you to do for God is with you so go down ahead of me to Gilgal I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do And as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. And when he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. He joined in their prophesying. And when all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? skip down to verse 17. And then Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king for us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. And then Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forth the tribe of Benjamin. Clan by clan, Matri's clan was taken. And finally Saul, son of Kish, was taken. And when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And The Lord answered, yes. He's hidden himself among the supplies or the luggage. And they ran and they brought him out and they stood him among the people. He's a head taller than any of the others. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king! And Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down in a scroll. He deposited it before the Lord. And Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. And Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels or worthless men said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and they brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent we see in this ordeal simultaneously both God's judgment and goodness to his people. You want a king, here's a king. And even the, the, the whittling down of the man by lot reminds us of, if you remember, Achan's sin as Israel enters Jericho, the only other time that a man is chosen this way. God's judgment upon the people to give them what they want, but also, at the same time, God's goodness to the people. And God's goodness, in particularly to Saul. Saul who goes out looking for donkeys, but he finds himself a kingdom. A calling. A mission. That God says, you, this is your call. This is your, what I've designed you to do and to be for my people. And he gives him further. He gives him confidence in this calling, doesn't he? Think about all the ways that God confirmed his call on Saul's life. The word of the prophet Samuel, the one whom it said that no word was fallen to the ground. That every word that he spoke came to pass. And he gives him signs, three signs, doesn't he? Hey, you're going to go to this place. You're going to find two men. They're going to tell you that your donkeys are found and that your dad's worrying about you. And then you're going to come over here to this other place and you're going to find three men that are carrying, and they're going to have all this stuff. They're going to have bread and wine and, and they're going to give you two pieces of bread and you're going to take that. Okay? And then you're going to come and you're going to meet a group of prophets and they're going to be prophesying and, and the Spirit of God is going to come upon you and He's going to change you into another person. And what does it say? Read with me again verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel and God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. The word of the prophet and signs fulfilled. You, this is your calling on your life. But it doesn't stop there. He not only has signs that are fulfilled about him that affirm his calling, he, what? he also has spiritual experiences. It's not just these objective signs that could have been orchestrated, but no, that, that God himself, he met with him as, what does it say? Read with me again, verses 9 and 10. As he turned to leave, God changed his heart. And verse 10, And when he and his servant arrived at Gibeah in the procession of prophets, they met him, that the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. Right. So he has these signs, and then he has... You know, God meets him. He changes him into another person. He changes his heart. He begins to do things that he couldn't do. He begins to prophesy in the name of the Lord that everyone can see, man, something is different. Something has changed. But that's not enough. He has signs, he has spiritual experiences. And then what happens? Well, he's chosen by Lot. It's basically like, you know, rolling dice to, and trusting the sovereignty of God to decide who their king is going to be. And his clan is taken, or his his tribe is taken, and his clan is taken, and then finally it comes upon him through divine providence, this is the man I was chosen. The the word of the prophet, the signs fulfilled, the uh, internal spiritual experiences, and then the divine providence all converge to, to tell Saul, you have been chosen. This is my call for you. This is my mission for what you've been called to do. And where is Saul at that moment? He's hiding behind the luggage. God fulfilled his call on his life. God gave him sign after sign, confirmation after confirmation. And yet, when he's called to step up and to step into the role that God has has for him, He's hiding behind the luggage. Now, as I explained last week, that there is a the, the theme of Samuel is that God exalts the humble and he brings down the proud. But what we don't want to begin to thinking is that what we see in Saul's life here is in any way real or true humility. That's in any way connected to a Adequate understanding of, of how we stand before God and what it means to have a humble heart before him. C.S. Lewis famously you know, talked about how now humans have been brought up to think that humility means that pretty women trying to believe that they're ugly or clever men trying to believe that they're fools. But ultimately what that does is just make you revolve and con- constantly think about yourself and your own Inadequacies or weaknesses or trying to make yourself seem like, like you're weak. But humility is not rejecting the gifts or the calling that God has on your life, no matter how grand or grandiose they are. Humility is putting those in proper perspective that they are God's gifts for God's purposes, for God's glory. And God has called Saul into this great mission. But he's nowhere to be found. Real humility does not reject God's calling when it seems great or grand or reject God's gifts when they seem that they're spectacular. Real humility just puts them in perspective that they are a part of God's story for God's glory. And when we have real humility, we persevere, we trust God to persevere through our fears. You know, that, that temptation to, you know, believe that, we're, I'm just an imposter. I'm too weak. I'm not able to do the task that God has called me to do. Now, I haven't watched much of it, but there's a, you know, there are fans of the British show, Doctor Who, who um, I see a couple head nods and I again I've only watched a couple episodes, but but in Doctor Who there's this thing called the TARDIS, which it's a you know, a British police phone box it's like the size of a phone booth. But as they step in, they don't just step into like a phone booth, it becomes this like huge spaceship inside that can travel through space and time. It's weird, I know. And what they what they remark is like you know, this, this TARDIS, this thing, is it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And that defies our explanation. I haven't watched enough of it to know if they ever really explain how that is, that, you know, something can be bigger on the inside than the outside, but, but it's part of the thing. But the Christian leader is one who's bigger on the inside than the outside. One who's whose heart is rightly developed in character and righteousness and holiness and and humility more so than their outside appearances. And while Saul, to steal a phrase from another pastor, Saul may be head and shoulders above the rest of Israel, but he's in over his head from the beginning. He has this call of God and yet when he He has this moment. He doesn't step into God's call. He he shrinks back and he finds himself hiding among the luggage, unable to fulfill. You know, God's saying, you are to be the king of my people. And yet he says, no, I'm too small. I'm too small. And that's not humility. Real humility. Trust the God who sends you more than the gifts that he's given you. And when God has sent him, God has sent him. When God has called him, God has called him. And when God confirms his calling, it's a shameful thing to be hiding among the luggage. Now real humility trust God to persevere through fear, but real humility trust God to persevere through weakness. It's so easy when God calls you to something great and grand, something that seems beyond yourself and beyond your ability to say, no, I I can't do that. I'm too small. I'm too weak. I have too many inadequacies. But ultimately, God's use of us, God's use of Saul, God's use of you, is not because that you or he is so great and so confident and so able to fulfill his task, but we serve a God who wants to make his power perfect through weakness, through inadequacies. And this is this is why what Saul here, it's, it's a foreshadowing of what's to come, the pride that's going to be his downfall, because it's the same side of the... It's a different side of the same coin. It's not this overconfidence, oh, I can do everything kind of pride. No, it's this self-absorption pride that says, I'm going to rise and fall based upon my own competencies, my own ability, and obviously I can't do what God has called me to do. This too is pride. And despite all the signs, despite all the call, he shrinks from the moment. Now, as a church, we are, we are going to begin to, to develop and, and move into like developing more relaunching small groups. And many of you will receive an email this week to try to understand your interests and your willingness to participate. Um, now, one of the best small groups that I've ever seen was one that my wife started several years ago. And as she's home, you know, taking care of kids who are getting over a stomach bug. I'm going to go ahead and take this opportunity to brag on her, but don't tell her. It's our little secret. Um, but it, you know, several years ago, you know, she, she felt this call from God to, to start this small group of some of the, the other um, you know, younger women in, in the church, some of these you know, young moms. And it was a, a small group unlike anyone that I've ever, I've ever seen. Not that I really participated in it. And one of the things, though, is that, you know, my wife does not like the spotlight. She's not much of a teacher. She doesn't really view herself as a leader. And yet, this, this small group, in, in the way that it worked, it revitalized the, the lives of these women, transformed them in, in ways that I've never, I haven't seen before. Not only that, but it went so far as it I don't want to, I'm not overestimating this, it transformed the culture of the entire church through this, this little group of, of women who, who became so connected, where, where the, the culture of the church just began exploding with this you know, sense of family that wasn't there before. This, all this happened, and, you know, as, she was, as we were planning to leave... And she was looking to to have, you know, a new leader to kind of step in and and to to take over what was started. And she, she, you know, no one really wanted to step up. Everyone kind of felt inadequate. And the Lord put this other woman on her heart and just asked her about it. And this woman kind of uh, beaten down by life a little bit, felt way too inadequate. She's like, "I, I can't do that. I can't do what you've done. I can't. I can't continue on this, this amazing group that's that's fed all these women the way that you have. And my wife's response to her was, listen, I'm just a hot mess of a mom led by the Spirit just like you. I don't really do much. And you know what? My, my wife in that humility was 100% right. She's not the greatest leader who's, you know, the, the church has ever seen. She's not a teacher. She's not expounding upon the scriptures in ways that, the, you know, brings about these truths that, that no one's ever heard before and it finally sinks in after years of hearing the gospel. It finally, you know, hits home. She's a woman who heard the call of God and said yes to it and allowed God to shine through her. She understood her weaknesses, and when when she takes a step back and sees the the fruit that God produced, the fruit in these women's lives, the fruit in the, the church's lives, it's not, oh, I've done all these things. It's, no, in my weakness that God has done all these things, that God has made himself strong in my weaknesses. It wasn't because of her cleverness. It wasn't because she stumbled upon the new way that's going to revolutionize small groups. No, it's because that in this time, with this place, with these women, that she had the call, that she said yes, and that God transformed his people and his church through it. Because his glory, his power, is not made perfect in our competencies. His power is not made perfect in our cleverness. In our strength. No, his power is made perfect in what? Our weaknesses. Our inabilities. That God puts on display his might in his power. And isn't that a good thing for the people of God? This very thing that Saul did not understand, that when God has chosen you, well, God has chosen you, not because you're so great, but because he is so great. And isn't that a good thing for the people of God? Yes, real humility, trust God to persevere through fear and through weakness, but also real humility, trust God to persevere through conflict. Perhaps one of the more uh, bizarre passages in this thing is, is right there at the end. Read with me again, verses 26 and 27. So Saul, he went up from his home in Gibeah and accomplished by valiant men whose heart God had touched. But some scoundrels, or your translations may say like worthless fellows, said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and they brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. Now, what I find bizarre about this is because I know where the story is going. And I've already kind of hinted, Saul's going to be a failure. Saul's Saul's going to turn his back on God. Saul is going to, through his, his own failures, his internal and moral struggles, he's going to lose his spiritual and moral authority. And ultimately, his entire family line is going to come crashing down because of him. And even here at the beginning, as God's call is on him and he fails and he doesn't step into God's Calling, but he's hiding behind the luggage. And yet, his detractors, who look at him with scorn and skepticism, they're not called wise, they're called worthless. They're not praised for their ability to see through the superficiality of his height and good-lookingness. No, they're called scoundrels. Because they, too, are viewing the things like Saul is. That the Savior of God's people is going to be dependent upon the competencies of the one that God has chosen rather than the power of the God who has chosen him. And God gives him these signs that as the critics are naysaying him, and they may in some ways be right, and yet Saul is called to persevere through. Because as God has called him, God has called him. And this is not to say that as God calls you that you should do so independently from the, the body to be able to speak into your life or, or apart from the work of the church to affirm God's calling on your life. Yet, the true call of God is often going to be met with criticism on the people who are going to look at you with scorn and contempt and see your, your flaws pasted as if they were on a billboard and yet God has called you. In the midst of your failures, in the midst of your weaknesses, in the midst of your fears, that the call of God for the people of God, it is, it is a, the chance and opportunity for God to put his power and might on display for the world to see. Now there's a da- danger in preaching a, mi- a message such as this. Too often, the ones who hear it are those who are already perhaps more self-assured than they ought to be. And say, yeah, God's called me. But this is a message not necessarily for them. This is a message for those who are unsure, who, are, who, are, who feel a, a call and a burden of God to, to be a part of a ministry. And yet you feel too small, too weak, too helpless to actually do anything that would be worthwhile those blinded and overcome by their own seeming inadequacies that I can't be a part of that. I'm too small. And I don't necessarily know what God's mission, his calling for your life is. Not in the specific way. But I do know in a general way A mission in which God has constricted you, O beloved of God. A mission that does seem too big. A calling, or should I say, a commission for his people in this time and in this place. To go into the world and to share the gospel. And like Saul, you have been called on this mission. And like Saul... You have been changed into a different person. Like Saul, you have been given a new heart. And like Saul, this mission is not dependent upon your own seeming abilities or inabilities, but it's dependent upon the power of God who sends you, the Christ who compels you to go to preach him to the ends of the earth. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? He doesn't say all... Authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. No, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to what? Me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all the nations. Therefore, you go and fulfill my mission for the world. Why? Because I'm going to be with you, even to the end of the age. And we receive this message not from a prophet. We receive this message from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's accompanied by signs, not just coincidences on our, on our road as we walk home, but no, it's, it's confirmed by the, the whole scriptures that testify to him that for thousands of years proclaim the one who is coming and the sign of the resurrection that Christ has defeated sin and death. We haven't received less than Saul. We haven't receive a second-rate sign and confirmation of our calling? No. We have the words of Christ himself who proclaims to us our mission to go out, to proclaim him to the world, to testify to his goodness and grace, to proclaim his reign and rule over a world that's hostile to it. And he says, I will be with you, me to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And humility... Real humility. We'll trust him in that. Past our fears, past our weaknesses, past the conflicts that we may experience, we'll hear the voice of Jesus and we'll go proclaiming him to the world. And we'll see him at work. Beloved, as, as we go forward from this place, go in the might in the power and the presence of Jesus, that his power will be made perfect in your weakness. With that, I want to invite up the the worship team as we prepare to sing this final song. Kind Father, come Lord Jesus among your people here today. Confirm and renew your calling upon your people. Lord, we ask that in the midst of our fears and of our weaknesses and our conflict that you would make your name great. That you would exalt yourself Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that you who have called us these people we who, who have no standing. Some of us who, who seem to have no wisdom or no gifts or, or nothing that makes us seem, seemingly special. Yet these are the people that who most put on, on display your power and your grace. So come Lord, give your people a heart of humility to rightly view ourselves and our calling out in light of what you have accomplished through your Son and by your Spirit. Glorify your name through us, we pray, in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.